was back in May 1961. Alan Shepard had just been the first American in space. It was only a couple weeks after that that President Kennedy went before Congress and gave NASA an incredible task. He said, before the decade is out, we need to fly a man to the moon, to land, and then to return him safely. It was a huge task. It was going to require two and a half million people to be involved. We would have to build new facilities. It would cost millions and millions of dollars. We would have to invent new technology and new materials. It was an overwhelming task to try to get to the moon and to return safely before the end of the decade. It was in September the 12th, 1962, that Kennedy went to Rice University in Houston in order to try to inspire the nation to make sure that everybody was behind this great dream of going to the moon. And as while he was there, he said, we go to the moon. We go to the moon. Not because it is easy, but because it is hard. And it would be hard. To go to the moon and keep having to change our course along the way. You see, in many people's minds, they knew how to get to the moon, they thought. But problems would arise. There would be challenges. And in the end, the way to the moon would look very different from the way that they had first anticipated. The way forward would look different from what they had planned. And you know it's hard to change course. One of the first things that happened was they were thinking, all right, how do you get to the moon? And they talked to Werner von Braun, and he explained there's only two ways. One way is direct ascent. You take off of the big rocket, you fly to the moon, you try to land it on the moon, and then you fly it back. The second way is Earth orbit rendezvous. You send up a rocket and you send up other rockets and they rendezvous and you put together a a special capsule and then you fly to the moon and fly it all back. Only two ways. Everyone agreed. But in the early 60s, there was this junior engineer, Tom Dolan, working down in Houston, working for a company who worked for NASA. And he looked at this and came up with a different idea called Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. He said, the big problem we're going to have is weight. How do you get this much weight to the moon and back? And he said, wouldn't it be better if you had a little lunar landing craft and it came down and landed on the moon? And then when it blasted off, you left the base and only a little capsule came back to rendezvous at the capsule. And then it can be jettisoned and then you fly home in your capsule. Well, he put together a 40-page report explaining the theory, and this is how to do it, a lunar orbit rendezvous. He went and took it to his boss who looked at it and said, thank you so very much, you can go. It then happened to land on the desk of a man named John Hubble. And John Hubble was an engineer for NASA, and he took the time to read the report, and he thought, this really is the answer. Tom had written in his report and said, I feel like a voice crying in the wilderness. John picked it up. He began to cry in the wilderness. He sent it to Mr. Siemens, who would make the final decision. And when Mr. Siemens saw it, his response was, this man needs a vacation. There is no way in the world this is ever going to work. But it is interesting 
Let's just make sure somebody looks at it. One year later, NASA decided it was lunar orbit rendezvous was the way to go to the moon. It was a significant change in course. Now what we had to do, though, is we had to design a lunar lander. We had to design that little thing that was going to come down and land on the moon and, and then rocket back up to rendezvous with the Apollo spacecraft. The, uh, have to, how do you get this done? So they, did, they went to Grumman. Grumman received the contract to design this lunar lander. Tom Kelly was in charge. And as they started designing it, they had this little bitty thing sitting on this pad and they had these nice big windows in front where the astronauts could sit and see as they came flying in. And Tom said, how much do these windows weigh? Oh, five, six hundred pounds? He said, can't we make them small? Do they have to have windows? Well, yes, yes, I think the astronauts are going to want to see when they come landing on the moon. Well, all right, I wish we could make them smaller. The next evening, the the engineers came back and said, why do they have to be sitting down? Couldn't they stand up when they fly the lunar lander? I've never thought about that. They're going to land. It's one-sixth gravity. Their knees will work as shock absorbers. Well, that's a great idea, but I just don't see it. Tom Kelly went home. His engineers stayed up all night long making a full-size mock-up so that when Tom Kelly came back the next day, he walked in, and there was the lunar lander in a full-size mock-up so he could walk in, stand at the controls where you would fly the little lunar lander and look out the window And when he stood there, he said, I see it. And that's the direction we went. Over and over, we would run into problems. And new ideas would arise. And the way forward would look so different than what they had planned. But you know, it's hard to change course when you know where you think you want to go. This morning, I want to continue on with the sermon series, Do the Hard Thing. And what I want us to look at is the very real issue that we are all on a journey to a meaningful life, and yet problems arise, maybe divorce, it may be the death of someone you love, it may be the loss of a job, or maybe you're stuck in a job you hate. It can be the loss of health or finances. We all know what it means to be on a journey and to run into problems. And the way forward has to look so very different than what we'd expected. You have to change course. And changing course is a hard thing to do. I said each week that what we are going to do is look at the people of Israel because they were on a journey. We were following them from when they were slaves in Egypt, when they were the Hebrews, and last week we looked at how they managed to get out of slavery and into the wilderness. But I want to follow them on a little bit further today and we get all the way to the edge of the promised land. They've been in the wilderness now for two years. Two years they've been in the wilderness. They get to the edge of the promised land And when they get there, Moses sends 12 spies to go check it out. 
And the 12 spies go into the promised land, and when they come back, they got a pole over each shoulder, and it's got grapes that are huge on it. And they bring this incredible food back and say, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a great place. However, there are people in there, big people. These people are like giants. We are grasshoppers in their sight. And the people begin to weep and to moan. And immediately they say, Moses, how come you brought us into the wilderness to die like this? Who can we elect to take us back to Egypt? Isn't this a reoccurring theme? We heard the same thing last week. And that's what they're crying again. The way forward is going to look different than what they'd planned. There was going to be a change in course. I think about Joshua. This young man who had come out with Moses, kind of being, being mentored by Moses. And now he's come all the way to the edge of the promised land and he knows it's time to move on in. And that isn't going to happen. How does Joshua survive this kind of a problem and setback? What does he do to be able to survive this change in course? What do we do? That's what I want us to look at this morning. And there's three things I think we need to see. First of all, there is a way forward. We may not be ready to see it. You can be sure there is a way forward but it may be that we're not ready to see it. Or it may be we already see it and we don't like the answer. The people of Israel got all the way to the edge of the promised land. God was ready for the people of Israel to go in. But they weren't ready. They didn't see it. They didn't like the answer. It brought about a change in course. This summer, I, I was teaching a course over at Oklahoma City University to ministers on leadership. And I went back and was pulling out a lot of my books that I've read through the years to get different ideas. And I pulled out one of my favorite called Good to Great. And as I was looking through it, I, I was reminded of a wonderful story. The story is about A&P grocery stores. Most of us will remember A&P grocery stores. Do you know A&P, what it really stood for? Atlantic Pacific Tea Company. That's where the name came from. Atlanta Pacific Tea Company, A&P Grocery Stores, the largest grocery store chain in America at one time. It was very successful, would be over 100 years old, but in the 60s and 70s, A&P went into decline. And they could tell things were changing in the grocery business. And they were trying to figure out how do we hold on to our share of the market. And so what they did was they created what they called the Gold Key Store. And the gold key store, they had a manager and said, you go do anything you want to do. It needs to be innovative. It needs to be different. He looked at the trends going on around the country. People were moving to superstores where they sold groceries. And so he created that kind of a store. And you know what happened? It was hugely profitable. It just soared. The profits were high. It was doing well. And so the leaders of A&P decided to close that store. Because they didn't like that answer. They didn't like that answer was what was being successful. So they closed it. And in 2010, A&P filed for bankruptcy. There was a way forward, but they didn't like the answer. There was a way forward, but they weren't ready to see it. NASA, 
when NASA got this responsibility to go to the moon and back, well, they had to now figure out how to get there. Maybe it's lunar orbit rendezvous. And then we now have to build a lunar lander. But once we get there, the men have to get out and walk on the moon. So the next big thing we need is a spacesuit. The environment is so harsh there in outer space. I mean, if you lose your spacesuit, the pressurization, you die in a second. I mean, you have to be protected from the heat, from the cold. It has to maintain your oxygen. It has to be strong. And so what NASA did was they went to two government contractors. They gave them a certain amount of money and said, go build us a prototype. Each of you gets a shot at this. Closed invitation. You two get to bid, try this. We'll give you some seed money. Bring us back an idea. But there was a third company. A third company that wanted to bid on the spacesuit, and they went to NASA and said, you do not have to give us any money, but if you would just give us the invitation, let us present our spacesuit. We would like that. The company was Playtex. Playtex is well known for making girdles and bras. And they said, we think we could build a spacesuit. And so it was that Abram Samuel, he was the owner Several years before, he had noticed his TV repairman was an incredibly bright individual. Hadn't graduated from college, but he seemed very smart and had the right working spirit. He hired him there at Playtex, and so he took Lenny Shepard, this man who used to be a TV repairman, and he put him in charge of building the Apollo spacesuit. He then got some other engineers around him, and then they went and pulled women off the line who were making girdles. And they took the same material that was being produced for the girdles and they began to build this spacesuit. And they took the materials from the bras and straps and used it for different kinds of support. And they worked on it and put together 21 layers that had to be sewn within 1 64th of an inch. That was the measure of tolerance. 21 layers. You could not use pins. And you had to be able to hand sew it by sight. And they made this thing one off by hand. Custom for a person. And when they came and presented and you had your three, the government contractors, they kind of were building armor. They were thinking military. And suddenly Playtex comes in and they got this movable um, space suit that can bend and their idea was so superior to the other two, NASA had to take them seriously. The problem was Playtex wasn't set up for government standards and bookkeeping and bureaucracy. No, they just had a brilliant idea and the right way to do it. And so they set to work. The answer was right there. NASA wasn't crazy about the idea. I mean, how do you go to your macho astronauts and say, yes, we're building you a spacesuit? by a company that builds bras and girdles. But they did. And it is Playtex that built every single spacesuit, custom for each astronaut. It was amazing. So amazing, there's actually a book out on it um, called The Spacesuit, Apollo Fashion. And it's going to be made into a movie. It's a great story. The answer's right there. It may not be what you want to see. It may not be the answer you expect. But it's how you go forward. Secondly, 
It really comes down in life to faith, to trusting that it is God that is still leading us in the wilderness. Remember, we've said faith is not assent to beliefs. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. That's not faith. Faith is trust. It's trusting in God's love towards us, His children. It's trusting when you don't understand. When you feel like you're having to change course and the way forward is different than what you had expected, can you trust that God is still leading? That's the very thing the people of Israel were having such a hard time with. We're here to the edge of the promised land. Do you want us to go in? We don't trust that God is still leading us. For Joshua... It became imperative that Joshua, as he now had to change course into the wilderness with the people of Israel, to still believe there is an answer. There is a way to go forward. And I trust that God is still leading the people of Israel and leading my life. It's the only way that Joshua could stay connected and not become cynical and dispirited. Am I willing to have faith and trust and see God in the midst of the struggle? It was in 61 that Yuri Gagarin went into space, the first man to ever fly in space. He was Russian. After Yuri Gagarin went up, he circled the earth several times and safely landed. And when he landed, the first thing he said was, I've been to the heavens, and I can tell you, I did not see God. It'd be a few months later that John Glenn would go into space. Alan Shepard, Gus Grissom had low-level flights John Glenn was the first American to go up and orbit the earth about five times. He would see the sunrise and the sunset every 90 minutes. John Glenn was a man of incredible faith. On the weekends, he made sure he was home to teach Sunday school. And when John Glenn went into space and after he safely landed, he said, I saw God's handiwork and the beauty of his creation at every sunrise and sunset. I saw the glory of God. What do you see? Do you still see God leading in the midst of the wilderness? Do you still trust when you've had to change course and things aren't going to look the way you planned? That was the question for Joshua. Can you still trust in God that the course has changed And do you still believe he is leading and guiding? And so third, if you can believe that there is a way forward, and if you still see God leading, then you will learn and grow from your time in the wilderness. You will learn and grow from the pain, from the disappointment, from the fact you had to change course. I don't mean to minimize it, but it is real. The truth of the matter is, we learn, we grow from the struggles. That's life. If you believe God is leading, and if you can believe, there is still a way forward. I told you one of the books that I read this summer was entitled The Four Doors by Richard Paul Evans. 
I've told you before about Richard Paul Evans, how he is a very successful writer. He's written 20 novels now. All of them have been on the New York Times bestseller list. But years ago, his very first novel was entitled The Christmas Box. And it was the story of a young family who lost a child. And when they lost this baby, they grieved. But the wife really grieved. She could not get over it. And it was the story of her struggles in life and how finally in a cemetery, as she is grieving, she looks up and sees this statue of an angel. And God speaks to her heart and leads her on to healing. And that's why when we had the bombing here in Oklahoma City and so many children died, Richard Paul Evans sent a replica of that Christmas box angel, an angel of hope, to Oklahoma City. It was given to the Red Cross for keeping, and then the Red Cross gave it to us for safekeeping, and it's now in our garden. That is the Christmas box angel, the angel of hope, and we have it out there on display. Well, he had written that book, and then he wrote, as I said, 19 more, and, but this book is not a novel. The book I read this summer is very thin. It's just an inspirational book that basically talks about his philosophy for life. And in this book, he tells about his own life and how when he was 41 years old, he went to the doctor and he was diagnosed with Tourette's. Now, Tourette's is a very strange illness. And, and what it really is, it, it leads you to where you want, sometimes want to jump up in your public and you want to shout obscenities and spit into people's face. He said, thank goodness I never did that, but I sure felt like it many times. Tourette's leads you to have all kinds of twitches with your eyes and your face and, and you, you can't control it. So he came to see the doctor and he was diagnosed with Tourette's and the doctor said, are you surprised? And he said, well, no, I, I knew something was wrong. I'd always kind of wondered. But he said, suddenly he started to cry. And the crying went into sobbing. And he said, I was sobbing uncontrollably. And he said, I, I wasn't sobbing for my life now. He said, I had a good life now. Married, kids, successful author. He said, I had a good life. No, I was crying for this child, a little boy, so many years ago. He said, growing up with Tourette's is so hard. Growing up with Tourette's, you're ostracized, you're alone, you're laughed at. He said, I remember the one year that I went to summer camp. I got to summer camp, and I would try to hold my face to keep it from twitching. And I remember when the boys gathered around me and said, come here, gather around. Let's watch what the freak does now. He said, it was so painful as a child growing up. No, I was just sobbing. When the doctor suddenly said, you know, Mr. Evans, your Tourette's is a Greek gift. A gift? He said, I turned around, I was angry. And he said, do you know why I'm seeing you today? Because I made an appointment? Well, no, no. Actually, I'm a research physician. I really look deeply into these kinds of things. It's when a colleague of mine came to me and said, you were her patient and she was looking for a referral. She thought you might have Tourette's. And when I heard, I said, I would like to try to help him. I said, I want to try to help you because you did so much to help me. Help you? We just met. Oh, yes, but a number of years ago, my wife and I, we lost a child. And we grieved. 
But my wife really grieved. She wasn't able to move forward. And then she read your book. And it spoke to her soul. It helped her to open up and start finding healing. It did so much for us. So I, I wanted to help you. Mr. Evans, do you think it's a coincidence that your books are full of empathy and compassion and you have Tourette's? I don't think so. I think it's precisely because you have Tourette's that you write the way you do. Richard went away and he thought about that. It really left him thinking. And it wasn't long after that that he was in California giving a speech, talking about adversity. How do you find a way forward? When he got through, a man came up to him and said, Mr. Evans, I I just had to talk to you about adversity and, and I had to tell you about a study that we've been conducting. It's really been through a survey. We've spoken to a a thousand people who have handicaps. And we went to the people and we've said, if we could give you a pill so that you would go back and be rid of your handicap and be able to live your life, but you would lose all the things you've gained because of your handicap, would you take the pill? How many do you think have taken the pill? And Richard said, I was thinking 90%. But I decided to lower my statement. I said, 75%. And the researcher said, Mr. Evans, would you take the pill? And Richard thought for a moment and he said, no. No, I wouldn't. And the researcher said, and neither has anyone else. Zero have chosen to take the pill. I don't mean to minimize the pain or how difficult it may be. But the truth is, you can grow and you learn when you're in the wilderness. If you believe that God is leading you And that there is a way forward. Just different than the one you expected. It requires a change in course. The people of Israel, yeah, they came to the edge of the promised land. They'd been out in the wilderness two years and they came to the edge of the promised land and they said, All the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept and the people murmured against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation. Would we have died in the land of Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a captain and go back to Egypt. They didn't go into the promised land. They went into the wilderness for the next 38 years. And during that 38 years, they would learn. They would grow. They would change. So 38 years later, they came to the edge of the promised land again, and Moses went up onto a mountain, looked over the Jordan River to see the land, and he died. And the mantle was now laid upon Joshua after all those years. 
And Joshua gathered the people together and he said to them, Today you have to decide who you're going to serve. Are you going to serve the gods of Baal or Yahweh? As for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. And then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It is the Lord our God who brought us out of Egypt, up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, who did those great things in our sight and preserved us all the way that we went. They had grown. They had done the hard thing. And they were ready to enter into the promised land. We all have to change course. There is an answer. God is leading us. You've got to still learn while you're in the wilderness. For if you do, the day comes when we're ready to go in. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.